Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm thrilled to be sharing a conversation about COVID and kids. As a mother of three young children, this topic is near and dear to my heart. My guest today is Dr. Janine McCready, an infectious disease physician and mother of two. She treats patients at the Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto and has been supporting schools and childcare centers throughout the pandemic. In our chat, Dr. McCready answers many of the burning questions on the minds of parents like myself. How can I tell if my kid has COVID? How serious is COVID in kids? Is it really just a cold? Which kids are at the greatest risk of severe COVID? Do parents of children without these risk factors need to worry too? What do we know and what do we not know about the long-term consequences of getting COVID? What roles do children play in spreading COVID to others? I hope that today's episode sheds light on why vaccinating children is important, not only for kids, but also for their families and for ramping down this interminable pandemic. For more from Dr. McCready, check her out on Twitter at Janine McCready. I also recommend taking a look at Science Up First. It's a Canadian initiative that brings together experts like Dr. McCready to fight misinformation using science. You can connect with them on their website or on social at Science Up First. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much, Dr. McCready, for making time to talk today after a full day of call. I really appreciate it. No, thanks so much for having me. So to get started, can you just briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do as an infectious disease physician? Sure. So I'm an infectious disease doctor, which means prior to COVID, I mainly was in the hospital seeing people with all kinds of infections from regular things to complicated tropical infections. And then since COVID, I've basically been seeing patients in the hospital with COVID, talking to people in the community with COVID. And then one of the really interesting things I've got involved with is supporting our schools in uh, here in East Toronto. So we set up a school support program when schools went back in kind of last August, so August 2020, and then have been highly involved with them kind of around, you know, infection control measures, trying to keep COVID out and then supporting testing in the schools and really helping parents and schools to really get through this the best that we can. Well, it sounds like you have the perfect expertise and perspective to speak to what I was hoping to cover today is helping our listeners understand why COVID vaccines even exist for kids. So what is the burden that COVID places both on children and on society when children remain vulnerable and potentially able to transmit? For sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And I think there's lots of good things to discuss there. Yeah. So first things first, maybe let's talk about what what are sort of the signs and symptoms of COVID. So how do you know if someone might have COVID as a child, I should, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. So I mean, the difficult thing with COVID is it's basically indistinguishable from other colds or flus. So even as an infectious disease doctor who's talked to literally thousands of kids and families with COVID and seen probably thousands or at least hundreds of people in the hospital, you can't look at someone and say, you know, that's just a regular cold, that's COVID. So you can get runny noses, you can get sore throats, you can get headaches, muscle aches, fevers. There are some symptoms that we see more likely with COVID. So if people have a loss or taste of smell, uh, that seems to be more likely to be COVID. And then cough and difficulty breathing, but any of those cold or cough symptoms could be COVID. Uh, And sometimes in kids, they can get vomiting and diarrhea, but that's usually less likely than the other respiratory symptoms. If we have time, I wanted to dig a bit more into the runny nose one, but we'll just see how the time goes because that one seems to be sort of 
I'm hearing different things from different sources on that one. But just to make sure we get into a bit more on the range of severity, can you elaborate on exactly that question? So how often are we seeing mild? How often are we seeing severe? And how well can we predict who's going to get a more severe case? Yeah, so great question. So in the vast majority of cases in kids, very fortunately, symptoms are often mild and the, and kids often improve quite rapidly. So, you know, they may have a fever, but it's usually quite transient and they're within a day or two, they're feeling back to normal, running back around the house and doing all the, the good things that kids like to do. So we get into trouble mainly when you have kind of uncontrolled spread in the community and really high rates. And then you're getting kind of hundreds or thousands, as we see in some places in the United States, uh, kids infected. And that's when you get into more trouble with, you know, rare complications happening in healthy kids. And so there's been a few, you know, reports lately in the news of of young kids suffering from uh, myocarditis related to COVID-19. And so I know there's been lots of talk about the vaccines and having myocarditis, but we know that even in young children, myocarditis Carditis is much more likely from COVID than it is from the vaccines. So that's one of the rare things that we can see in healthy children. And otherwise, there's been some studies trying to look at, well, what kids are at higher risk, not just thinking about the weird things or the rare things that happen, but are there certain kids that are more likely to end up in hospital or have worse outcomes? From a recent Canadian study, the kids that were more likely to get admitted were ones that had uh, chronic neurological conditions, ones that had chronic lung diseases, and not necessarily asthma, but kind of more complicated lung diseases and obesity. So those were kids that were more likely. And then when you think about other viruses, the kids that are kind of at the extremes of age, so younger, like really little babies, they may be more at risk. And then adolescents seem to be a little bit higher risk than the middle, not not high risk, but then you're kind of five to 12-year-olds, which is also similar to what we see with influenza in kids. So the outcomes generally in kids of severe outcomes are rare, but we still, and talking to lots of ICU doctor or pediatric ICU doctors and pediatricians, you know, even though the outcomes are, are rare in, in kids, we should still be doing what we can to prevent infections so they don't end up in hospital or don't end up being sick. And so that's all in the acute phase. And then I think the other thing that we have to consider is what does it look like in the long term? And I think we're really, we're still kind of learning that. I mean, there's been lots of different stuff out in the literature about long COVID. And I think the challenge is knowing part of it's the definition and part of it's understanding what are we actually looking at. And so it seems like most of the data is showing that it's, you know, it's pretty, it's uncommon for kids to have long lasting symptoms, but I think we're still learning about this on a kind of daily basis. So still good to, if you can prevent it, certainly that's the best way to deal with the with it. Yeah. So if I'm sort of a very numerically minded person, so if I'm thinking about the pros and cons of a vaccine, just from a numbers perspective, without even considering others, only my child. So if I'm trying to put numbers on it, I'm thinking, okay, tell me what you think of this sort of logic that I'm walking through. Okay. Well, the best estimates I've read, I saw a report from the CDC that maybe 1% of kids end up hospitalized as sort of an average. And then yet that number is mostly people that had some risk factor. Some of them didn't have a risk factor. Most of them did. So if my kids, I have three kids, ages five, five, and 10, and none of them have any of those risk factors. So I'm thinking, okay, what's the risk that my kid, if they get COVID, ends up in the hospital? It's going to be less than 1%. So let's say maybe it's one in 500 instead of one in 100. All right. So that's the acute risk, maybe one in 500 of a severe outcome. But then there's also 
a couple percent risk of a long COVID outcome. I've seen numbers, you know, initially the numbers were bouncing around between 5% and 40%. And now it seems like it's settling in the sort of single digits. So that's when I'm doing kind of this pros and cons math, that's what I'm sort of tallying up in my risk column. So as a mother of children without risk factors, does that seem like that's pretty solid, like best as we can estimate for that piece of the equation? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean, the risk of admission, it may be a little bit lower, but it may be with Delta, I think we're still learning. So yeah. I think around those ballparks, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's move into the implications of kids having COVID that go beyond them. So what early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of confusion about can kids transmit? Can they not? What role do they play in transmission chains? Is it just that they get it from adults, and but they don't usually give it to adults, they only give it to each other? It seems like I've heard all sorts of different things. So where do we stand now? Yeah, so I agree. There's been a lot of different sh- or to kind of shift on this. And I think a lot of the narrative came from the fact that early on, at least, a lot of kids were minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. So you wouldn't necessarily know they had it unless you tested them. And so I think we have more data now that kids certainly can transmit and they, they certainly can pass it on. And we see that on a, almost an everyday basis when we're calling kids that have been at school and then you talk to their parents a few days later and the parents are now positive. So important to have them vaccinated to protect them, but also to protect the people around them. So even if the parents and grandparents and everybody is fully vaccinated by preventing infection in the kids, you're going to put a lay another layer of safety on there so that you're reducing the risk to all of their contacts. Because yeah, I think I think we have good data now to show that kids do do transmit and do pass it on if they have COVID and especially the smaller ones. I mean, there was a Canadian study looking at it and kids that were kind of more under fives were more likely to transmit to their families than adolescents. And that kind of makes sense from a behavioral point of view, because, you know, you think about it, you're hugging them, you're probably sleeping in their bed with them when they're sick versus if they're an adolescent, they probably just go to their room and shut the door if uh, <laughs> when, they're, when they want to be solitary. So yeah. certainly it's, I mean, if anyone that's a mom knows that it's impossible to not get whatever their kid has when they're cuddling them all night, basically. A hundred percent. So you, you said you've been involved in school. So what are we seeing now in terms of transmission with, within schools? And how has that changed with Delta? And my sense was last year, there weren't a lot of it ended up being like small numbers of transmissions, but not a lot of exploding outbreaks, at least here in Canada. The majority of it was fairly well contained. And then they've adopted Schools have changed their protocols to not as exposure alerts keep changing, whether or not you'll even be notified about an exposure and all of that. So what are your thoughts on what are we seeing in schools and what sort of policies do you think should be in place? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We could probably talk about that for a few mm-hmm. hours. I, mean, I, think, I think across the country, we're probably seeing different things. I mean, I think the important things that schools and some jurisdictions have put in place are, you know, I think masking really does help. And I think it really does reduce the risk. So masking in some jurisdictions from K to 12 has certainly helped to prevent that explosive spread that we were worried about with Delta. Some school districts have increased ventilation. So windows open, HEPA filters in every room. I think that's that's helping to control wider spread within the classrooms. And then screening. So and advised around making testing easy. So I think here in Toronto, we were very worried we were going to see like a large surge going into the school year, but they've still kept screening fairly tight in terms of who can, like, if you need to go get a test before you come to school. And we've really made testing accessible. So if someone shows up for school, the principal or the teacher can hand them a swab, tell them to go do it and drop it off at a testing center. So there's no disincentive to doing it because you'll 
get a, tur- you know, you'll get the test result by the next day and your kid can go back to school if they're negative, right? And they're better versus you take Alberta, for example, right now. And I mean, unfortunately, the province is literally on fire with COVID. The schools have no contact tracing system. The, the other kids in the class and the teachers are not even informed when there's a case. I think as of yesterday, maybe they're going to reintroduce that. I mean, it's in that case, you probably have multiple introductions every day and you don't even know. So I really feel for the educators in that province and the parents about the decisions they're having to make right now, because I think they headed back with even less precautions than us with the highest rate that obviously the Canada's ever seen in, in North America. So I think there's lots of things that they could be doing to try and layer on, like including regular testing in a lot of those places and really making testing easy for the families and introducing screening and, and the contact tracing back. And we'll see how things play out there over the next few months. Are we seeing the difference in Delta transmission in schools with the different uh, sort of more likely transmission rates? Or is it too, do we not have the sort of control studies yet to say that? I mean, I think we're learning things on a, on a weekly basis. I mean, from our first few weeks here, I think things have gone a lot better than people maybe would have expected. It's all about trying to figure out like when you're going to have kind of more one of those more super spreader or events or when you're going to have more transmission. Because there certainly have been in the news and, and looking at the cases across our schools here, there are some schools that you end up having five, six, seven cases related to an introduction. And then most of them, though, you only have maybe one or two other cases. So it's hard to kind of pin down, well, what about those? Was it because the kid was less infectious? They didn't actually attend school when they were at their peak infectivity. They were much better at wearing masks and distancing versus the other kids. Maybe they all were had their all heads in a huddle at lunchtime without their masks and it led to that. So I think we have things to learn, but certainly knowing how infectious Delta is in the shorter incubation period, I think it makes you have to respond faster because with the old COVID average incubation time, so time from exposure to symptoms and when you're infectious to others is kind of, it was more about six to seven days and now with Delta it's closer to four. So if you don't pick it up right away, other kids in the class could already be passing it on to other people before you even have tested the first index case. So all of those control measures need to be really tight to try and control the spread. And I think there's a lot of variability across the country and how well that's going, I think. And I think some of it's luck, to be honest, about just, and, and parents being really responsible. Like a lot of it's on personal responsibility right now. And really, it's really unfortunate when your kid has to miss a day of school. But if you prevent a whole class from being exposed, that's pretty huge, right? But it's hard because we've been in this for a year and a half and people just want their kids to be in school and be happy. Completely. It's very tricky time for parents. Now, what advice do you have for parents who are in a system that doesn't have testing, is maybe not taking full advantage of testing? I saw an article in which you were quoted where parents were taking the initiative and getting rapid tests into people's hands. I don't remember if it was once a week or somehow finding, taking advantage of programs that maybe offer rapid testing. Can you speak to the role of rapid testing and how parents can take initiative? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that if you can get your hands on them and then you can kind of roll it out in a way that you're trying to take take advantage and, and leverage the, you know, the other parents in your communities 
desire to keep the school safe, I think that that definitely is a tool that can be used. So, I mean, I know in our community, some of the parents completely on their own, they went out, they got swabs, they split them all up, and then they got people enrolled, and then they were swabbing, they were getting people to voluntarily self-swab their kids twice a week, right? And so that's an extra measure that they're doing all on their own. And I've had conversations with colleagues in Alberta, like saying, you know, maybe this is something if you're not going to get any support from your government, maybe this is something you want to do there to try and if you're motivated to keep your kids in the school, because everybody has a different risk threshold. But if you're in a situation where there's really uncontrolled transmission, certainly the rapid tests could add an extra layer of safety because if you're finding cases and preventing them from going in, especially when they're most infectious, then that's certainly going to be a benefit. Yeah. So what do we know about the infectious period? So you you mentioned sort of the, I guess, let's call the incubation period from the time from exposure to symptoms. And with Delta in kids, how much prior to symptoms do we think you're contagious? Yeah, so it, we, we still think it's probably about two days, but we have seen from kind of serially testing, we do a lot of, we're pretty aggressive in the hospital. As soon as people come in, we're kind of serially testing people. And the longest we've seen it is five days. So we had a person that tested positive and then we monitored them, obviously. And then they started having mild symptoms about five days later. So whether or not they would have actually been able to give it to anyone five days before is pretty unlikely. So I think this, the most common thought is, probably about two days before is then when you're you're shedding. And there's been different things quoted that a lot of the transmission happens before people even realize they have it. So that's why it's even more important to know if you've been exposed, because if you've been exposed, you're going to modify your behavior. And in an ideal world, you know, you're going to know that you are potentially exposed before you start developing symptoms. And that's especially important in a classroom. So I think most of Ontario still is pretty robust about their contact tracing related to school cases. But then on the flip side in Alberta, like if you have no idea, then you can see how the infections would just spread like rampantly and you'd see explosive spread because you would have no reason. And if you have, like you said, that mild runny nose without knowing you've been exposed, most people kind of just carry on at this point when if they knew they'd been exposed, they would have, they would take different action. Yeah. So maybe we'll just narrow in on runny noses since that came up again. Now, I've seen here in BC and in Ontario, it was last year, it was initially on the health screen checklist and then it got taken off of the school checklist. So I'm wondering what's what's going on there because then CDC has it on their list, but I don't think Health Canada has it on their list. So it clearly is possible to have it, but I'm wondering if the, is the discrepancy because it's rarely a symptom in isolation? Like is that, is it rarely the only symptom? Or what's going on there? I think there's a few different things that are going on. So, I mean, there was a group in Ottawa that did a a study kind of looking at how often symptoms were correlated. And when they looked at under fours, this was just single symptoms. So having just one symptom, under four-year-olds, just a runny nose wasn't necessarily correlated with having COVID because they probably have a runny nose from the time they start daycare till (laughs) when they go on vacation. But in over fours or like five-year-olds and up, it actually was. And it was actually more correlated even in the adolescent group. So I think that part of it is that it's it's hard to make people screen and stay off every time you have a runny nose because they're so common. And there are lots of other causes of runny noses. But certainly, runny nose could be a symptom of COVID. And I've called, I mean, I'd have to look through our records, but I've called a number of families where their the child's only symptom is a runny nose. And they're a bit shocked that that's what they've had. And we see that sometimes. And we also see that sometimes the runny nose is the first symptom. 
So you're right and that they likely they develop a headache or a cough or something later, it may be a day or two later. And in which case they've been at school or daycare or whatever for a couple of days. So it certainly can be a symptom. I think usually probably will be associated with other symptoms as well, but may not be upfront. And then the important thing too, I think that they showed in that study is if you know you're a close contact, then the just having a runny nose, it was very likely to be COVID. But that all depends on an intact contact tracing system, which I think it's that's variable across the region. So I think you knowing where you live, knowing what's happening, knowing how your public health system is operating, I think is important. So I think a little bit of it is trying to remove the stress on parents to have to rush out and get a test. And part of it is that I think they're worried across the country and having enough testing capacity to test yeah. every kid with a runny yeah. nose, to be honest. Well, I'm wondering if that's where a role where rapid tests could come in because it's unlikely to be, you know, it's sort of like a better than not doing a test is doing a rapid test. But that's my understanding is the sensitivity is a little bit lower. But if you, especially if you do them serially, you kind of catch up pretty close to what you would have gotten. Yeah. And I think that's what Quebec is going to try to do. One of the things I was hearing that they were going to use rapid testing for very mild symptoms. So symptoms that normally the kid would be able to go to school for. I mean, there's a lot of debate and it's that's a kind of a heated topic that for people that have symptoms, you should always use a PCR test and people that are exposed. But, and you know, that's a whole can of worms. But I mean, I do tend to agree that if the alternative is not doing a test at all, then certainly doing a rapid test is better. And then especially if you did the rapid test serially, right? So the sensitivity, of it improves if you do it a few days in a row to see if you are positive, if their viral load changes. And if you have mild symptoms and you're serial or negative, it's going to make it much more like much less likely. And if you test positive, then you've caught a case that you never would have caught. Yeah. I also think it's like you mentioned, you've got to consider the context. Like if there's a cold going around your family and then someone gets a runny nose, well, it's kind of a different situation than if you just came back from a trip and you're like, was I exposed or not? And you get a runny nose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you're in contact with lots of people where you don't know where they have been, if they've had symptoms versus if you, you know, everyone else is well around you, you haven't been in any high risk situations, the rates in your community are low, obviously much less likely to be have to worry about COVID. Mm -hmm. So let's start wrapping up with a little bit on just how do on vaccines. So this is sort of one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is to help people make an informed decision about vaccinating their children under the assumption that we will soon have that option. So since you have both the medical expertise and you are a mother, how do you think about risks and benefits of vaccination and how do you encourage others to do it? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. I mean, I kind of break it down myself for kind of three main things. So kids' personal risk, so risk of COVID, and then both short and long-term versus risk of the vaccine, and then kind of risk to more for in terms of their close contacts and also their mental health, like being able to enroll in more activities and not have to worry, and then kind of the, the bigger community picture. And so by them getting vaccinated, what are we doing to help this global pandemic be done as fast as we can possibly get it done? So, I mean, on the, on the first point, I think we've talked about my children, luckily, knock on wood, very are they healthy. So their risk that they would have severe outcomes would be low. But I think their risk of severe outcomes or really any negative outcome from the vaccine is even lower, right? Assuming that the evidence that we see coming out from the studies is the similar to what we've seen for adolescents and for adults, these vaccines are amazing. We do know that there is a low risk of myocarditis in adolescents, especially in young males, but that risk is lower than their risk of myocarditis if they get COVID. 
So even on a direct health effect, I think their risk is still low. And I mean, I think there are things about viruses that we aren't going to know for years in terms of if there are other long-term effects of COVID. With measles, for example, it's a very different disease, but there's this thing called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis that you can get like 10 to 15 years later after measles. And it's terrifying. And sure, it's super rare. But if that's something that you could see with COVID, I would, or something similar, then I would, I think in a heartbeat, it changes the whole risk calculus to like for sure get you know, vaccinated. So I think on balance, health-wise, it even makes sense for even if your kids are healthy. And so let me just interject say, I'm so glad you brought up that uncertain long-term risk because you hear that all the time on the vaccine side, but we don't know the long-term outcomes of vaccination, but we don't know the long-term outcomes of COVID either. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think people always say that about the long-term effects of vaccines, but the the mRNA technology didn't just come around last year, right? Like there's been years of studying this that builds up to the ability for us to be able to make these vaccines. So, I mean, the understanding of how vaccines work and how they they activate your immune system, it wouldn't make sense to see any long-term effects that we wouldn't already be learning about because most of the impact is all going to happen in kind of your immune response and then the four to six weeks after the vaccine. So the fact that there hasn't been any significant signal, and the only thing we've really picked up is myocarditis, which again, lower risk than from getting COVID yourself, that is very reassuring to me as as a clinician and especially as a mom. So I think that's a big thing. And then everyone around the kid, my kids are vaccinated and they don't see anyone that's not, but you don't know how, and most people are going to be just, they're going to be just fine if they're vaccinated and they get COVID. But we have, you know, they have grandparents that why would you take that chance, right? And then if you can make everybody feel comfortable hugging and spending all the time together and not having to worry, that is, I mean, I think that's huge for for everybody's mental health, really, and to kind of move beyond this and to be able to not have to worry and let your kids participate in all the activities that they wanted to before, I think is is huge. Those are impacts on your family. And then in terms of the community, I mean, I really I think that people have gone through a lot in this pandemic. And we are, we do that. We are asking a lot of people to do all these kind of think about others. But I think this is almost it does require people to get a vaccine, but it's almost the easiest thing to do, to be honest. Right. Because then you've you've protected your kids. They're not going to be a vector to, to transmit to other people. They're not going to give it to you. And then instead of having to decide, OK, well, how many contacts do we have and are, can we meet with these people indoors? Do I have to feel bad about sending my kid to an indoor birthday party? You know, I get like multiple messages a day saying, do you think this is okay? Do you think we should go? And can my kid do this activity? And if they were vaccinated, like a lot of that knock on wood, hoping that everything continues as, as it's going well, a lot of that you don't have to worry about anymore. And then you can feel safe basically again in our world, which would be, I think, wonderful (laughs) for all of us. Yeah. I think about it exactly the same way. And I just think it's natural as parents to fixate on any small risk and that myocarditis one that I think, and the maybe long-term are ones that seem for some reason to overshadow the risks of COVID itself and of the transmission of your child being a vector to harm others. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think the disruption to school too, right, is that's a huge thing is that we've really, like in my household, we've really prioritized my kids are now in school. So we've minimized our other contacts outside of school because they've missed so much in the last year and a half in terms of education. And I really like, I think once they're vaccinated, I'll feel better about them hanging out with other people outside of school because the the reduce will be, the risk will be so much less that they would 
get COVID and then potentially bring it into the classroom and then have the class dismissed and then them, them not being able to go to school. So I think that's a huge, huge thing too, is it'll make the educational, like they can focus on the learning and the, the good things about school instead of having to have the extra layers of worry about COVID in the classroom. Yeah. Well, before we close, are there any recommended resources you recommend? Because I know you're big on, you know, helping people get access to credible information. So if people have questions about COVID and kids, what are your kind of go-to resources to learn more about diagnosis, testing, symptoms, vaccines? What are some of the places you recommend? That's a great question. So, I mean, I think that a lot of our um, provincial and federal agencies and public health units, they actually have done a really good job putting together like easy, easily digestible information. So like Health Canada, whatever your health unit is, usually does a good job that way. I mean, the, the Science science at First people and their website is great and they have really good regular forums that provide experts that are providing good, like measured and scientifically based opinions that can, you know, you can actually ask questions to, which I think is really great. And I think anything, like I know a lot of people, because when I have conversations with people, when I call them all the time about when they have COVID, I kind of ask them, well, what made you not get a vaccine? And there's so much misinformation out there. And a lot of it's shared just through social media. And I think it's hard, but take a step back when you're hearing, if you are hearing those stories, and kind of like, go try and actually do your research on like platforms that are reliable as opposed to those themes because you can go down a rabbit hole and I know like I've talked to people and when they go, I go through the actual evidence and the data they're kind of amazed that that's that they haven't had the opportunity to see the real data and they've been afraid to get vaccinated and now they've, they're suffering from COVID and it's they would do anything to go back and not be sick and not be in the hospital yeah so yeah maybe I should have asked the question just as important what do you ask people to tune out <laughs> like what what are some signs of misinformation right yeah no for sure for sure and I mean everyone always has a story about my somebody 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 who this happened to when they got the vaccine and I think the thing that we need to remember is that there's great studies but there's also so much monitoring around any vaccine side effects and any reports so we're everybody's keeping an eye on that data and no one's trying to hide anything right like we all have a vested interest in making sure that everything is as safe as possible and I think with what happened with AstraZeneca I think highlighted that as soon as there was any kind of signal that things weren't safe immediately you know I think fair enough it was confusing and things were maybe not messaged as well as they could be at the time but it was addressed and then it was at least people could understand what that risk was and go through it and certainly we could have done a better job at the time but now we understand those things and no one tried to like sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. Yeah I think both the blood clots and the myocarditis are success stories in a way the vaccine monitoring system. Exactly, exactly. And that's how I see them is that we actually paid attention and are still gathering information so that we can make, make informed decisions. Yeah. I always like to say stories are sticky, but they're not science. Please turn to the science. And I agree. I'm a big fan of public of Health Canada's website. I think it has great resources and Public Health Ontario. I, I agree. They've done some great summaries of common questions, whether it's a risk of blood clots or whatever's the latest concern or mixing matching vaccines. I, I've been really impressed with Public Health Ontario's documents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've done a great job. A lot of really good explainers for sure. And of course, Science Up First, I think it's a great thing you mentioned, being able to actually ask questions and have them responded to is really valuable. So is that tomorrow you're doing a yeah, seminar for them on, on Back to Fall? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm excited. I haven't, I haven't uh, been involved before in a forum, but there, they've lots of amazing, good questions have come in from people. So all kinds of discussions in terms of where we're at now compared to before, and like what's safe to do. And yeah, I think it'll be a great discussion. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk today and for everything you do, both for patients and to communicate with the public. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good evening. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.